0: Start selling on Shopify today. Go to Shopify.com slash CNN for a $1 per month trial. Hey, it's David Rind. You may have heard me on five things before. I wanted to drop in here to tell you about one of our other podcasts. It's called Tug of War. And over there, we're posting daily updates on the war in Israel. Each episode, I talk to a CNN reporter who is on the ground in Israel. I think it's been really helpful to get their perspective on what they're seeing up close and how it fits into the bigger picture. So we're gonna play our latest episode right now, right here, so you can get a taste, and just search tug of war wherever you listen and follow the show to get our daily updates. All right, here is tug of war.
1: This
0: is the sound of mass exodus. Early Friday morning, Israel's military told over one million people in northern Gaza to evacuate to the south. They dropped flyers from the sky to spread the message. Hamas said residents should ignore those orders, but people did start moving. However, the United Nations said such an evacuation would be impossible without humanitarian consequences. Remember in Gaza, over two million people are packed into just 140 square miles. And then, a few hours later, we learned that the Israel Defense Forces did indeed send a limited amount of troops into the Gaza Strip to search for hostages. As we record this, it's not clear if they found any. Meanwhile, this is the sound of rage. From the Middle East, in places like Jordan and Iraq, to the U.S., thousands gathered on Friday to show their support for Palestinians amid devastating Israeli airstrikes on Gaza. The passion surrounding this conflict also has a lot of Jewish Americans on edge. Some cities have beefed up security around schools and synagogues. But as we end the week, I think it's really important to remember that people are still traumatized and still grieving after the initial attack in Israel. Today, we hear about one of those survivors.
1: By the time I realized really what was happening, it was already too late.
0: From CNN, this is Tug of War. I'm David Ryan. If you listen to previous seasons of this podcast, you are familiar with CNN's chief international correspondent, Clarissa Ward. She is among the first to arrive on the scene when conflict breaks out around the world, and this time in Israel was no different. I spoke to her on Thursday. Clarissa, where are you right now?
2: Right now, I am in Ashkelon.
0: I know you've been out surveying the aftermath of the Hamas assault. What did you see out there?
2: Yesterday afternoon, the Israeli military finally agreed to take journalists into one of the kibbutzim that was attacked, one of the largest atrocities that actually took place on Saturday. It's a kibbutz called Be'eri. It's normally a sort of tranquil community of about a thousand people. A lot of them have lived there for many decades and essentially... At 6.30 in the morning on Saturday, residents told us they heard a large barrage of missiles. That's not entirely unusual there. So they went to their bunkers that almost every house has. But what they realized quite quickly when they started to hear small arms fire all around them was that this was a different kind of an attack. Hmm. And the problem with going to these safe houses or bunkers that each house has attached to it is that. They're not designed for that kind of an assault. They don't have proper locks even.
0: Oh, no locks.
2: Not the kind of lock that can withstand that sort of force. Hmm. And so what we've seen from social media videos that we had studied before going to Betty is that these Hamas militants came up to the gate. They waited. They saw a car approaching the gate, got out, shot the driver. But the driver had obviously opened the gate. Then they ran in through the gate. More and more of them started to arrive first on motorcycles. And they basically began going through house to house, abducting people, executing people, setting fire to their homes. Hmm. And the residents were telling us that they were furiously sending WhatsApps. They had a small defense group on site, but they were very, very quickly overpowered and killed. By the time the Israeli military got there, there were already scores of Hamas militants. And what transpired then was just days of pitched battles between the military and the militants. Some of the residents we spoke to said that they weren't rescued until well into the night on Saturday. More than 100 people that we know of were killed and that's not including the Hamas fighters whose bodies are still strewn around the entire kibbutz. The scope and scale of the devastation and destruction in this kibbutz is really extraordinary and really gives you a feel for the ferocity of the fight to try to take back control of that kibbutz. And the reason the military didn't even let us go in until yesterday afternoon was that they were still finding small pockets of fighters popping up and engaging in skirmishes. Hmm. But I think, honestly, for all the horror that you can see walking around this kibbutz and the blood and the destruction and the family photographs smashed in the rubble, the thing that chills you to the bone is talking to the survivors. How long have you lived in the kibbutz?
1: Now, about 30 years. In
2: that same... And we spoke to one man called Thomas Hand. He's, I'd say, in his mid-50s, originally from Ireland, had lived in the kibbutz for 30 years with his eight-year-old daughter, Emily.
1: A very physical dancer, singer, judo, capoeira, Piano, active, 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 active. Uh, Yeah, she would have been a talent in one of those, that's for sure.
2: He has two older children. His wife died five and a half years ago of cancer, so he was Emily's primary caretaker. And he told us his harrowing and horrifying story on the night of friday she went to stay with a good friend of hers in the kibbutz for a sleepover and he said he's been torturing himself because she very rarely went on sleepovers but she had really wanted to do this and so she went for the sleepover and as the attack began obviously his thoughts went to emily but he could not get out
1: by the time i realized really what was happening it was already too late and i truly regret that i should have gone through but never mind it is what it is
2: he moved from the bunker quickly once he understood it was a different kind of attack he told us that he was hiding behind the kitchen counter with a handgun that he had that he's never used before.
1: Yeah, I just held on to the gun. It's heavy. I have a kitchen unit, so I I just rested it on there, ready and waiting, and waiting. I'm thinking the army are gonna be here soon. You know, just hold on a bit longer and longer and longer. And, uh, I've never been in the army, um, but that was the scariest few hours, day. It was a, a full day, 12 hours until the army came in. Uh, scariest day, evening of my life.
2: When he was finally rescued by the military, of course, he was desperately trying to find his daughter, Emily. And it was another two days, two agonizing long days, before he says he was brought down in this hotel where the survivors are staying. And there was a a team of psychiatrists and social workers and doctors and organizers of the Kibbutz there. And he said, they told me softly but quickly that Emily had died, softly but quickly, because there were a lot of other people to get to, mm. which is a line that I just found so chilling. It really stayed with me. And then this extraordinary moment when he tells us that his feeling was relief.
1: I uh, just said, we found Emily. Uh, she's dead. And I went, Yes! I went, yes, and smiled. Because that is the best news of the possibilities that I knew. That was the best possibility that I was hoping for. She was either dead, I knew she wasn't alive, or in Gaza. And if you know anything about what they do to people in Gaza... That is worse than death. That is worse than death. The way they treat you. They'd have no food. They'd have no
2: water. Relief. Relief that she was dead because for him, the other possibility that she would be held hostage in Gaza for days, months, maybe even years, terrified out of her mind, being held in horrific conditions...
1: So death was a blessing, an absolute blessing. I punched the air. Most of the people feel that way here. There's maybe one or two that don't realise what happens in Gaza once you're a a prisoner. So yeah, in this crazy world, I was happy to hear that my daughter was dead. (laughs)
2: That is crazy. And he even said to me after he, he said this, he said, what a crazy world I'm living in that I could ever say that as a father.
0: Right, it's backwards.
2: But I think it gives you a sense of how some people from these communities feel in terms of the fear of being held hostage is, is so visceral, so terrifying, so horrifying, that in some ways, death, as he put it, is a blessing.
0: More from Clarissa in just a bit. Shopify's taking the cash register online, helping millions sell billions around the world. But did you know that Shopify can do the same thing for your retail store? Back to Tug of War and my conversation with CNN's Clarissa Ward. You've been in so many war zones over the years. What does this kind of butchery, this kind of attack do to a community psyche going forward?
2: It has a devastating impact. The trauma, the horror, the fear that doesn't ever leave you. It's hard to imagine walking around this kibbutz and talking to these survivors that it can ever go back to being what it once was for its residents, which was kind of a tranquil, peaceful community of like-minded individuals sharing a life together, working on the land together, sharing their money. It's very much a sort of collective mentality. Hmm. And while some expressed interest potentially in going back to see their homes and to see the aftermath. No one seems ready to envision a future where that spirit and that place could be rebuilt and revisited.
0: Like whatever life they had there, that's that's over at this point.
2: And I, I, I think you see that David honestly reflected more broadly in Israel. There's a sense for so many people here that an inflection point has been reached and that there can't really be a return to the status quo, ante Imperfect as it was, it certainly was better than the situation facing people now. Hmm. And at the same time, I've also been really struck by the strength Of these survivors. Tom told us that he is really focused on trying to be strong for his two older children. Hmm. And he said to us, that's the mentality here. That's the spirit here. You grieve, but you stay strong for the ones who are still alive. The ones who still remain.
0: Well, Clarissa, thank you for bringing us these stories. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Tug of War is a production of CNN Audio. This episode was produced by Krista Beau, Paula Ortiz, Anna Sterla, and me, David Rind. Our senior producer is Haley Thomas. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of CNN Audio. Special thanks to Brent Swales, Caroline Patterson, Robert Mathers. Jameis Andrest, Nicole Pessaroo, Wendy Brundage, and Katie Hinman. And just one thing before we go, I know it's been a heavy, heavy week of hard news. So I really hope these conversations have been useful for you as we all try to make sense of this conflict. We'll be back next week with more updates. I'll talk to you then.